Welcome to Don't You Lie to Me. <laughs> okay, let's go. Don't you lie to me. I'm going to have another drink. Don't you lie to me. Explain that to the kids. Don't you lie to me. Okay, let's hear that story. Let's start interviewing. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Don't You Lie to Me. I'm your host, Jeff Bell, along with our producer, Warren Hicks. With this podcast, we're exploring the visual art scene in North Carolina by bringing you interviews with artists and arts professionals throughout the state. Don't forget to check out our website at don'tyoulietome.com. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Our Twitter feed is at D-Y-L-T-M-N-C. Enjoy. The following podcast contains adult language. Oh, I like that. Previously on Don't You Lie to Me. All right, let's do this. This is going to sound stupid. If you th- Did that sound stupid? Have we started recording, Mark? We'll just start with like a hey, the hey there, hurry, the hey there. I should learn how periods work. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, who, who, uh, I don't really, I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but it's, it, it's, uh, or, yeah, but a lot of palate jacking going on. And that takes place in my living room every night of the week. That's our special time. You know, it's like corporal punishment. Your butt might get wet. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Way to go, Warren. Fuck you. I'm pulling this out of my rear end. Butterflies, airplanes, insects. And we blew them up. That's exciting. It was one of the most fun things I've ever seen. And it's just impossible to show it all. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I... It's... it's Maybe. Oh. <laughs> I've always heard people say, that's a really stupid question. No way. Oh, yes. Hello. Hello. Um, uh, um, but, uh, uh, um, I'm always interested in how people get into clown school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not really going to answer that question. Um, people call me dickweed and I'm okay with whatever. I was probably just going to start peeing my pants or something. Mm-hmm. That's my dream. Yeah. That's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> now I am. You're smart ass. What? Ooh. Yeah. He's also a smart ass. Oh, touche. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Susan Harbage Page. Hey, Jeffrey Bell. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. I've been uh, super nervous all week about talking to you because I want in my brain to like um, encapsulate your work into like one thing. Initially, I thought of you as like a photographer because you do take photographs, but I don't. I don't know if I can just get it to one thing. Do you get it to one thing in your mind? No. 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 I also think about the importance of objects mm-hmm. in your work, but maybe we can get to all that soon. You uh, grew up in North Carolina, right? When I was 10, we moved here. And where'd you move to? We moved to Charlotte. And yeah, so I grew, I grew up and went to high school in Charlotte. How was that? It was fun and crazy, and we were bust, and I had a good time. Right. Yeah. 
Well, it's actually the start of my, really the start of my art making career because I took two classes in photography Wow. in high school. And that's really most of the training I had till a, a lot, lot later in life. So like the dark room and all that good stuff. Yeah. We used to put our hands right in the chemicals. They oh, would get yeah. brown. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't, there was no ventilation. <laughs> right. Yeah. That was back in the day when we just did it and spent hours and hours in the dark room. I used to skip my advanced history class. And go to the dark room. And oh work. wow, yeah. that's so cool! When I went to undergrad at Wilmington, and, and maybe they do now, but at that time they didn't have any sort of photography program. And so when I got out of college, I was like, I don't, I've never even like done the real thing. And I ended up going to the art center to take some classes just to like be in a dark room because wow. it's so. Part of it's a romantic thing, but part of it's just understanding how it works. You know, I always was like, I should at least know what I'm, what it yeah. is. Yeah, it's really magic. I mean, back in the day, you'd put the thing in the hypo or the developer, and it would slowly come up, and it was this chemistry-based silver. I mean, it actually had silver in it. Right. And, you know, I think about that today, and my students today don't even know what film is. Right. They don't know what a wet darkroom is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's a beautiful experience. What sort of images were you making? Do you think about that, or was it just the act of doing it? No, I mean, I was making, I made a lot of Mm self-portraits. I've always made self-portraits. And I did a lot of stuff that was about light and sort of abstract work. Like There's a a photo that I did in high school that was my first photo that a museum bought. Oh, wow. Yeah. We went camping up in the mountains as a class, and I had this big old 4x5 camera, and I did this close-up of the do on the tent so it was just this really beautiful in focus image of all these water droplets on the tent in the morning so that's one of the most memorable ones from that time wow yeah you didn't go to undergrad for art though right no i studied saxophone i have two degrees yeah in saxophone performance from michigan state university and uh yeah i was playing the saxophone and making you know, visual artwork. And when I was in college at um, MSU, I used to do these things where I had a small group, like a band, and then I would project. This was back, way, 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 way back. So it sounds kind of simple today, but it was sort of a happening back then. No right. one was doing it. And I would project my images, and then we would all respond. Oh, cool. You know, we would play in response. So... That was kind of fun. And they were all sort of abstract images. So it worked. So what yeah. what kind of, was this like jazz sax or? I played jazz. I played classical stuff. I was really into what we called new music. There were like, I don't know, 12 or 15 of us and we were into new music. And we loved Laurie Anderson and we played John Cage stuff and early Steve Reich. And, um, so these are things in my mind that, you know, visual artists relate to. Oh, yeah. Uh, as far as music. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think a lot of my work really still sources that, you know, that idea of indeterminacy and mm-hmm. looking closely. And, you know, I incorporate that sound as important into my videos. And I don't know if you saw several years back, I did this big tent that was um, in an exhibition at Duke and... It had this sound that I'd gathered from all over the world, all these religious ceremonies. I don't think I saw that. Yeah, it was this big tent that floated above the ground and light came out from underneath it. It was called Revival. And it had images all over it, printed on it. And then it had this sound from like 
like a revival I went to off of 54, some sound from Bulgaria, some sound from Italy, the nuns saying the rosary, wow. some sound from East Africa, some amazing events that I witnessed there, some sound from an Ethiopian monk at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, and the call to prayer in Jerusalem. Anyways, all those were all mixed up together. Right. And it's sort of chaotic and you can just barely hear it as you walk around the tent. Very cool. There's no entrance into the tent. Mm -hmm. So you have to imagine whatever right. is in that tent for you. Right. I can't tell you. You can't tell me. Mm -mm. I want to know. I can't tell you. <laughs> so one thing, uh, I did watch a TED Talk that you did. Oh, dear. And, you know, I'm very familiar with the Border Project. Mm -hmm. But I love the fact that you equated it to an experience that you had as a child. I believe it was you... Uh, your mom and three sisters about traveling in Europe and the difficulty of getting into, I believe it was Romania. Mm -hmm. I love the fact that you have personalized that connection that you've made, you know, you, you've equated it to something that you've experienced. Can you tell about that, that experience and how you've sort of morphed it or related it to the, the border project? Well, I think there are a lot of reasons why I do the Border Project, but one of them, the oldest sort of source, is in 1969 when I was 10, mm -hmm. my mom kind of stuffed my three older sisters and I into this red Volkswagen van, and we toured Europe. We drove around Europe for three months, and we camped out. We didn't eat in restaurants. <laughs> it was the only way my mom could see that stuff, and so she just took us with her because she wanted to see it so badly, and right. it's kind of an amazing moment in my life. But we did all the traditional things, you know. France and Italy and Paris and London and Germany and just, you know, saw all the major artworks right. in those places. And then for a moment, think about it. This is 1969. The Eastern Bloc countries open up. So she takes us into Czechoslovakia, um, Turkey. I remember being lost in Turkey. And the only thing we could see were military vehicles. We were oh, wow. kind of scared out in some backcountry road. Um, so she took us to Bulgaria, Hungary, Romania. Going into Romania, the, the regular road or uh, bridge that we were supposed to take was washed out. And so we ended up on this gravel road at like 10 o'clock at night. It's dark. And we're trying to cross into Romania. And they take us out of the van and they lock us up. Wow. And there are guys with guns. And we don't know what's happening. There are no cell phones. There are no computers. I don't remember any telephones in the place, but maybe there were. And they took everything out of our van and looked through all of our belongings and sprayed off the bottom of the van because maybe they thought we had something under there. I don't know. Oh, wow. And they were looking up our last name, Harbage, in this big book. They, were, they had this big, huge book, like 10 inches thick with all these handwritten names in it. And they were looking for our last name in there. Of course, they didn't find it. Right. You know, nobody knew where we were. Mm -hmm. Back then, we would go to an American Express office to get mail and to have contact with my dad. Right. So it was pretty scary. And it was this idea of being caught in between. I wasn't a part of either country. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that at 10, I realized how important U.S. foreign policy is. I realized that when you step over from one country, they might speak one language, have really great and abundant food, great roads, great houses, heating, plumbing, and then you step across another line 
this imaginary line with 18-year-old guys with guns and piece of wood that goes up and down that's painted white and red. Right. You get across that, and all of a sudden there's another language. There's nothing in the stores, nothing to eat. They live in huts. And people, I'll never forget, I was 10, and people coming up and touching my hair and uh, the dress that I wore. I had this little blue knit dress, and they'd never seen this knit material. Oh, wow. So they were coming up and touching me as if I was from this other place. Right. So it was it was a very, very powerful experience. I bet. Yeah. You said that she did this because she wanted to see these things. And you said you saw a lot of the sort of masterpiece work. So I'm guessing she's into art. She was into art yeah, prior to this. Yeah. This is a powerful story for me. My mother went to Ohio State and she wanted to be an artist. Think about when she did this. It probably was during the war. She took sculpture classes and the sculpture, she said, I knew my sculpture was as good as everyone else in the class. She mm -hmm. was the only woman in the class. And she said the teacher just wouldn't even look at her sculpture. Oh, man. Just, it was just that kind of environment. Right. So she always had this sort of longing to be a part of this, but she also was really into it, I'm guessing. What artwork from that trip? Is there a singular thing that stood out or something that you still really resonates with you? Mm, I remember being in the Vatican. I remember Reims Cathedral. I remember the tapestries, which have influenced my work. The unicorn tapestries. Oh, you right. know, I was yeah, 10. Yeah. Sure. And so I remember those unicorn tapestries very, very strongly. I just remember going to church after church yeah. after church. I remember in Greece, we had to kiss an icon before we went into this one <laughs> church, and it just grossed me out. I just didn't <laughs> want to do that. I just thought, who would do that? Ick. So I remember kind of funny stuff. Right. Right. We started talking a little bit about the Border Project. How did that start? How did you first go down there? What did you sort of envision that project being before you went there? Well, I didn't know that I first went to that area in Brownsville in 1994, and I had, was going to photograph a car that had the shape of the Virgen de Guadalupe on the fender and like made out of rust that appeared on this car. Right. And so this little town, Elsa, Texas, little tiny agricultural town, they build a church around it. They build a structure around it. They put benches out. It becomes the shrine. Mm -hmm. And I was really interested in how shrines and cathedrals become those things and how they're initiated. So I went down to photograph that, actually, mm -hmm. in 1994. And then later on, I heard what was happening. And I remember thinking, there's so much information coming at me, so much information on the web. I just want to go see for myself what's happening on the border. Mm -hmm. And I had heard from a friend of mine that if you were stopped by the border patrol, these objects were being left on the border. And mm -hmm. so I went down to see, and I just started walking on the border. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing those first objects, a comb or a pen, and those are both signs that somebody's been picked up and taken to a detention center. Mm -hmm. I didn't know whether to pick them up or not at first. I, I felt them really powerfully, but I wanted to give other people a way in to see the border. So I, I picked them up and started taking them home. I didn't know what I was going to do with them, but I would photograph them in place and then take them home. Right. Yeah, because, you know, you and I look at those things and they're about self-care, and they are about self-care, but they're also 
a weapon if you're a member of the Border Patrol. So, mm. And they're also a sign that somebody's been detained in right. a detention center. In the work, as you said, you photograph them in the space. But to me, they're not, they're not just like an archival photograph. They're very beautifully shot. What is your process about that? I mean, it seems like you're, you're considering it in the space as well when you're making those photographs. I mean, I guess that's, that should be just assumed, but they really are beautifully shot in, in the environment that they're in. Yeah, I try to make a photograph instead of shoot a photograph. Right, there you go. But... <laughs> Yeah, that's one of the things that I like to have in my work, sort of a uh, seductively disturbing part of it. They're beautiful. Mm -hmm. You get up close to them, you look at them, and then you slowly realize what they are and what they mean. Right. I think there's another thing that was important to me getting into this sort of walking the border, which was I lived in Baltimore City. Uh, The block that we lived on was one side of it was on North Ave. And I learned to look down and read the street to see if I was safe. So I would read what was, you know, what was on the ground, if there was drug paraphernalia or bullets or just condoms, whatever. Like it, and I would know, oh, you need to get out of this part of town. Yeah. Or, oh, yeah, this is good part. You can stay here. Because I actually mistakenly moved my family to Utah Street. And it was a very unsafe part of town. Wow. Yeah. So that's also sort of a precursor into this work on the border. It's a way I knew, you know, looking down, looking at the objects, reading those objects was a way for me to know if I was safe or not, which is... Did you turn that into an art-related project or was it just a a way of seeing and thinking that later translated to the border project? That was not an art project. (laughs) I did do work about guns when I was in Baltimore because 300 people were shot that year and killed, murdered. Um, so I did make a series of guns. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I think precurses this is I had a fellowship from the North Carolina Arts Council in 1996, and I lived in Palestine and Israel. I lived mostly, I stayed outside uh, the Zion Gate in Jerusalem for quite a bit, and then in a small Bedouin village in the Negev Desert, Lakia. And I worked with a group of women who made rugs um, to make a living. And that experience of living in Jerusalem and crossing over to Hebron and then coming back to Jerusalem or going to Ramallah and then coming back and seeing both sides of the border was really powerful for me. I bet. So we talked about you take the you make the photograph of the object in the space and then you bring that back. You photograph it again. Mm -hmm. What's that about? What's that? Is it a separate? Is it just isolating that object? Well, I knew that I wanted to re-photograph them in my own space and create this archive because I wanted to have another way of looking at the border. I have this history of documentary photography, which is something that I was and still am probably trying to push back at. I love it. Mm -hmm. I love Walker Evans. I have his photographs hanging in my house. He's one of my early you know, one of the people I admire and and look at, I name my son Walker. But there's also a part of documentary photography that's not fun. It's about privileged people going into a space, making a photograph of a person, not knowing their name, and leaving. Or at that time, most of the photographs in the news were of some sort of immigration story that had gone bad. 
So I didn't want to recreate that. I wanted people to look at what was happening, the trauma on the border. Almost every woman who crosses the border experiences some sexual assault or some, you know, some violence. So I wanted to get people to look at that specifically, but I didn't want to photograph people crossing. I see that Mm -hmm. all the time. I never photograph it. If someone's being picked up, I put my camera down. I just, this is not something... I wanted to do. And I knew for me that these objects were really powerful. I knew that they held multiple stories. For me, again, I was thinking about Assisi and St. Francis and all those religious reliquaries that I've seen over the years in Italy. So I sort of think of them dually, these objects. I think of them as portraits. A photographic portrait really is about preserving the past. Mm -hmm. And then I think of them as icons that really hold the presence of someone or something. So I think of them in those ways. But in the beginning, I wanted to re-photograph them. And I thought, oh, I'll just do the regular photographer thing. I'll photograph them on a black backdrop or a gray backdrop or a white backdrop. Mm -hmm. And I'll put one of those little measuring sticks in so that everybody can see how big these things are. And then I thought, wow, I'm not into these things being seen as evidence. That's not what I'm after. So then I switched and I decided to just use colorful backdrops, backdrops that of, you know, things that I'd seen on the border, houses and businesses and signs. There's a lot of hand-painted signs there, Mm -hmm. and they're very colorful and beautiful. And so that's what I do. I just photograph them on those colors. Put the year that I found them. There's a lot number because I would just ship them back in cardboard boxes. Mm -hmm. And then there's an item number. Give each one a specific number. And I used to think of it, my studio, as this neutral space. Now, in retrospect, I know that it's not a neutral space. It's my space. I control it. I don't pick up every single object. I couldn't, you know, and when it's 100 degrees out or 110, you just don't pick up everything. You leave some things behind. (laughs) Or after you've picked up 200 combs, you don't pick up anymore. So it's not a a scientific look. It's it's an archaeological look. It's, It's a pushback at the way we preserve our histories. We often save stuff like, George Washington's false teeth. Right. Or somebody who's rich puts their mom's silk dress up into the attic and it gets saved and it gets forgotten because they own a house. Right. And they have a history and stuff gets passed on. Mm-hmm. And this is a different history. I just wanted people to look at this present day history that is really not seen. Mm-hmm. I often take people with me to to walk just to be safe. And if I ask my friends from the area, they look at me and they thank me because what they have only seen as trash before becomes, you know, these rich stories of people trying to make a better life for themselves. Right. You see it connected Safety. to the person. Yeah. Right. So you've got the, the photograph from the location, mm-hmm. the later one in the studio, and you still have the object. I still have the objects, yes. And I just did my first exhibition with only the objects. Right. And I was really happy with it. They were, they were really powerful. Was there a text component? Was there a description of when and where? Or how did you display that? There was a text component a short text component that explained what I was doing and where the objects came from and what they're about. And this, you know, this space, this in-between space on the border, this point of transition, this point of trauma. And then I built, um, with the help of 
some other folks, um, a small platform that was maybe a foot off the ground and painted it bright yellow. And then in the beginning, it was going to be white. And then I thought, oh, let's just make it yellow right. and beautiful. <laughs> and just laid out all the objects on it. And the whole exhibition only had 76 objects, but it took up a whole big mm-hmm. exhibition space. And I always leave them dirty when I first, not dirty, but they I leave the soil on them and the plants and stuff. I don't wash them. When I first started picking them up and bringing them back home, I thought, oh, I could wash these and clean them and fold them. And then mm-hmm. I thought, no, I'm just going to leave them like they are. Right. This is a really tough passage, and I want to reflect that space. And so, you know, we put them out on the um, this bright yellow platform, and then all the the little pieces of soil would curators love me right right because (laughs) so anyways you know the place still exists it's it's held it's embodied there's so much that is embodied in those those artifacts and they're just the thing about them is they're mostly commercially made you know some things i collect and save because they have a a hem somebody you can see that somebody hemmed them or if i find something that's folded i will save that shirt folded because I want to think about who folded it for who. Did somebody's mother fold it for her son? Did a daughter fold it for her father? You know, a young couple? Right. I, I don't know, but somebody folded that and cared for it. I have one orange shirt, and I found it was still wet by the side of the border. And you could see where somebody had taken their, you know, it was right by the Rio Grande, because right. people swim across with their clothes in a black plastic bag. And then they get to the other side and, change their clothes and then kind of go into Brownsville. But there was this bright orange shirt and you could see that somebody had wrung it out. You could see their handprints in it. Oh man. For me, that's really beautiful. Right. Is it still like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how many times have you been down? I've probably been 12, 15 times. Wow. Sometimes I go twice a year and I didn't go this year. I didn't go in 2016. I went December, 2015 and I only brought home one object that year. Why is that? It just got too hard to keep picking these things up and bringing them back to my studio. And the object I brought back was a fishing lure. It was this fish hook, this yellow, bright yellow fish hook. And it means, so you think about how you get caught by something. Often on the border, the lookouts will at five, you know, they'll be out there fishing at five o'clock. And that's, you know, that's what you do. You fish, but you're really a lookout for either somebody to cross, a coyote, a group of people coming, or maybe a drug. Somebody's trying to get some drugs across the border. So I knew it was a symbol of that. But it's Mm -hmm. also, I see people who are just fishing and trying to have something to eat. Right. It's also a sign of recreation on the border. It, It has so many symbols. But that year, it just... I think maybe the just the layers of loss mm-hmm. and hope that I have collected. Most of the objects are on the U.S. side that I pick up. Early on, I would walk the Mexican side of the border, but I don't do that anymore. I just, I, I don't know. That well, I year, was, I just I just couldn't pick up. It was too hard. I couldn't Like keep hard it. emotionally? Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. So I just brought that one thing back. Wow. And I think that's the end of collecting these objects. That's the completion of this you know, this alternative perspective on the border and this different way of looking and saving history. Right. I mean, I probably will keep working on this because it's not going away and it's getting more and more intense. Right. And who knows, I may continue to do that because it does show how the border changes. Different years, I pick up different things and different 
places sometimes have more things and I know where people are crossing and right. I know enough of that border space to know what's happening and I can read it because yeah. I've been there so many times. But that year I just couldn't pick up any more. Wow, just so I brought really that one fish hook back. That's the last object, number 867. That's crazy. One thing that I'm always struck by is in my mind, I think of this wide piece of water that you have to get across. Mm -hmm. And every time I see it, I'm like, well, that's not that's not so very big, is it? Well, I, I guess it depends on where you're. It depends on where you are. And I'm always in East Texas, but I've canoed pretty far down and have been down to Roma and Eagle Pass and Laredo and some different places on the border. And it's it gets wide. It does. And deep. And yeah. I did a, a community project with artists from the United States and Mexico early on in, 19, in 2007. And we bought all these inner tubes because I do find inner tubes that people cross with. And we walked over to the Mexican side of the border, went underneath the International Gateway Bridge, which in Brownsville and Matamoros, which is one of the most cross borders mm. uh, in the world, actually. And we blew them up and tied them together and made this bridge and connected uh, Mexico and the United States. And it was in protest of the border fence that was going to be built and right. is built now right mm -hmm. in that area. So, um, But at that time, one of the things I realized was the river is a space where people used to come together. It's a space where people started telling me their stories about birthday parties and fishing and family outings and picnics. So this beautiful landscape that once brought people together, this river that once brought people together is now this point of separation. So this is going to sound stupid. Is the border in the middle of the river? Where, what is that? It's the middle of the river. I actually learned this, that there, like, I've done a couple of actions where I've tested this theory. And one of them was this fence, this, um, a floating bridge mm -hmm. crossing over, I think is what I called it. But I was actually going to swim it all the way into the United States. And we went into Mexico because we knew it would be easier and there would be less surveillance from the border patrol. Right. People in the town the night before I went to a dinner party and they said, oh, are you really going to do that? Have you? Do you have permission? And I, I just said, no, no way. I'm not asking permission. I'll never get to do this if right. I ask permission. So I got ready to swim it across the border. And what I was going to say, it gets really deep really quick. I was really surprised. So I got ready to swim it across the border and... The Border Patrol, of course, show up, and they said, if you cross this river, if you cross the middle of the river, we will arrest you. So there's a lot of people there. I have a videographer there to as protection, sort mm -hmm. of. And I'm like, you know, I got my passport here in this plastic bag. Can I just swim on over? And they're like, uh-uh, wow. we will arrest you. So I thought, okay, pick your battles. So it's in the middle of the river, and wow. eventually I had a friend from the north side of the Rio Grande swim and meet me. So we tied the bridge together right. in the middle of the Rio Grande. And then the other thing I did was if you go to any of the bridges, there's a line across the bridge in the middle of the water and we're in the middle of the bridge over the water. There's a yellow line and then there are these yellow dotted lines. And on the Nuevo Progreso Bridge, I climbed over a border barrier and laid down in the middle. I just put my body on that line because I wanted to ask people to think about borders as this thing that affects humans, it affects bodies, it right. affects families. It's 
you know, it's not this imaginary line on a map. You know, most borders are made by people far away who have a lot of power and they're in a room and they're looking at a map and they draw this line with a grease pencil mm -hmm. and then you actually get to the terrain mm -hmm. and you have to interpret that and then you have to live with it. And so I wanted to take it back to the body. So I did, I did that art action and I did get chased away by the border <laughs> patrol <laughs> and I'm not sure I would do that one again in, in this day and age, but you know, traffic stopped and wow. it was pretty powerful to just put my body on that actual borderline. Right. And you call it an anti-archive. I do because it's in opposition to the histories that usually get saved. It's, you know, usually we save things of people who are rich and famous. Right. We probably have, you know, Dorothy's red glittery slippers some place that she wore in the Wizard of Oz and they're very valuable. They're and, the Smithsonian. Right. Okay. And they get <laughs> saved. But right. this stuff that I think isn't telling a very important history of the United States is now preserved in this archive that I've made. I like to think of it now as the anti-archive of human trauma mm. on the U.S.-Mexico border. When I think about my objects and I think about reliquaries, I think about it's a way of moving power through an object. Mm -hmm. And so, th in fact, that is what I do with my work. I move the power of this border story through moving the objects into other places where they're accessible. But instead of moving them from the big cathedral to a, a smaller, more rural church, I'm moving it from this border space mm -hmm. to a museum. So it's this alternative way of interpreting a space. It's alter an alternative way of getting people to think about the U.S.-Mexico border because it is an imaginary space for most people in the United States. Most people in North Carolina will never go to that border. Right. They don't know what it's like. They don't know how militarized it is. They don't know that it, there's a second border at Falfurias, you know, 100 miles north that you have to cross. They're never going to see it. So this is a way of getting people to see it and look at it and think about it. Right. I'm sort of interested in how, obviously, there's a lot of decision making throughout this process. You said, you know, you're not collecting everything. So your decision making there, it's it's how you photograph it initially and then later. And then you've also chosen to to show them as objects. I, I, I just see this, all of these options. Like if I was to say, hey, come and do a show with us, do whatever you want. How do you approach that? How do you make those decisions on this is, I really feel like it's this. Does that make sense? It does. It's a good question. I think like right now I'm working on showing some border pieces that are videos. And I've done performances where I sew an actual border into a topographical map. So I've done videos. Right. I've done, I have the objects, the anti-archive. I have photographs. I have these performances, mm -hmm. art actions, humanizing the border that I've done on the border. I think it just depends on the space and mm -hmm. the curator. And my work has always changed slowly over time. Right. So I think... So it sounds like you kind of listen to, you know, you have these intuitions or notions maybe about how to reinterpret it or how to view it. Is that true? Or does it, does it, I'm guessing your, maybe your viewpoint of those things changes? 
I think it does. I mean, and you, if you think about it, it's a lot of my lifetime too that's tied up in this. I'm, right. It's been 10 years that's amazing. that I've been working on this in some form or fashion. And my work doesn't stay the same. Right. So it changes. And I think what I'm trying to get to is there's a parallel story. There's this work on the border, which is the photographs and the objects. And then there's a series of performances, which are really me coming to terms with how I feel about the border, thinking about what it means for me to be a U.S. citizen and doing this, to mm -hmm. be a white person with privilege. That's one of the things I know that I can do this work because I have a passport. Right. I have a driver's license. I have a UNC faculty card. And I've had to come to terms with what it means to be you know, a white, privileged person doing this work because it's not my story. I mean, it, that right. is not my story, right? I right. haven't, and I could never understand what that's like, mm -hmm. but I do see it. And I think it's in my nation state and it's not okay with me right. to traumatize this many people. Mm -hmm. It's not okay. So something has to change. And this is my way of saying, look, look more closely. But it, it, the performances, I think, are me sort of trying to navigate that right. and understand that. Because my work is always about something I'm trying to figure out. I mm -hmm. never have all the answers. So when you're in these very intense projects, what do you do to sort of step away and get away from it for a little while? I have a very dear friend. And she looked at me one day and she said, oh, I get it. You do this work about women's textiles and labors and painting and drawing. You know, you have to do that, this lighter stuff, you know, in opposition to this really hard work that you do on the border. Because when I'm on the border, I mean, I've had guns pointed at me. I've been chased by helicopters. It's really, it's hard work. Right. And so I think there's probably two things that I do. And one of them is this exploration of textiles in Italy, like I leave and go to right. Italy, this great convent and safe place. And um, the other thing is I walk. Mm -hmm. I walk pretty much every day. And walking is really important for me. Wandering is important. You know, it's not the here or the there. It's that space in between. It's that, that wandering, that meandering. It's important on the border, of course, because that is a pilgrimage mm -hmm. of sorts. And the more Rebecca Solnit I read, the more... I understand how important it is for my body to be in that space and the walking. But when I'm in Italy, I'm walking every day. I'm walking every afternoon. I'm walking every evening. What are you it's thinking about when you're walking? One of, the, one of the nuns said to me, walking mm -hmm. is like medicine for you. What am I thinking are about? Are you sort I'm of like... aware or are you, or are you kind of in that space where you're sort of removed from a specific thought? I think I'm just being. Yeah. Walking is so delightful. Mm -hmm. You know, you're looking at the light, you're listening to the sounds, you might stop and say hi to somebody. Looking forward looks one way, looking back looks different. Mm -hmm. It's kind of amazing if you just stand in one space and look forward and look back. Right. You know, positionality, it's really being aware mm -hmm. and letting yourself be. It's not really trying to think about anything. I think that's, for me, the thing that opens you up to everything. Right. We're going to take a little break. Uh, can you hang out for another few minutes? Sure. Thank you. Are you tired of being bullied by your peers? Always being told you'll never be number one, no matter how successful or popular you become? Do they make fun of your name? Welcome to the world of the number two pencil. That's right. 
people still use them. We're the Dignity Restoration via Name Change Council, or the Dignity Restoration by Name Change Council for short. Either one's fine. We don't really care. Enough is enough. We don't call winners losers. So why is the number one selling pencil in the world cursed with the name number two? It doesn't make sense. Number two is something your kid just did in his pants. Granted, he also does number one in his pants, which isn't cool either, but it doesn't cause emotional scarring. Bottom line, you shouldn't leave pencils lying around while changing diapers. It's just bad parenting. The number two pencil, it's number one. It has an eraser. Hey, everybody, it's time to get off your ass and go look at some art. Hey, Jeff Bell. Hey, Warren Hicks. Thanks for coming on the show. I'm always here. There's a rumor going around that you're not working at 21C anymore. True. I enjoyed my wonderful time at 21C, but I am now the executive director of the Vala Simpson Whirly Gig Park and Museum in Wilson, North Carolina. Well, that's pretty exciting. It is very exciting. I've loved his work for a long time, and it's pretty cool to be a part of what's going on there. So these whirly gigs you're talking about, are these like the pinwheels you buy at Walmart and stick into your lawn? Oh no, Warren, no. These are massive metal objects made by Vala Simpson. They're huge and they are up in the air and they move with the wind. Beautiful things. You said these are large whirly gigs. What's the average height? Most of them are on posts between 30 and 40 feet tall. And then the whirly gigs themselves can be anywhere from 10 to 40 or 50 feet in width. Whoa. Oh, yes. When the park officially opens, there will be a lighting component that will sort of light up all of the whirly gigs, which will be pretty cool to see. Can't wait to get out there and see it. Please come on out. We will officially open the park on November 2nd, so check out our website and our Facebook page. Our website is wilsonwhirligigpark.org. Hey there, Kelly. Hey, how are you? <laughs> I'm real good. <laughs> Let's go. What's going on down there at Bump? Well, at Lump, um, for this October, we have George Jenny. I like that guy. Yeah, he's pretty good. Mm -hmm. And he's taking the entire space. So on one side, he's going to be recreating the office from The Shining. And on the other side, he's going to be projecting movies, probably The Shining, other movies he loves, other mm -hmm. video art and things that he likes throughout the month. But we'll be able to come in and see him kind of at the end of September, build the set. And then... So we'll be able to see it going up. Yeah, you can see it going up. Oh, cool. We'll still be open. Mm -hmm. And then once it's finished, uh, it should be about first Friday in, in October. That's October, October 6th. 6th. Yeah. So October 6th, the office should be ready for people to come into. And then throughout the month, we will have different screenings uh, next door as well. What's the office? The office is, there's a scene in The Shining when Jack Nicholson goes in to take the job. The interview. interview. Yeah. Oh, interview yeah. I, I like that a lot. Yeah. So it's, it's that office that he's going to be recreating. So I'll be able to go in that. You will. And then we're going to be able to see some video and, and other things. And other things. And you'll probably get a lesson in, in film and video art from George while I, you're there. Well, I need that for sure. Yeah, I think we all do. Where can I find out about Lump online? Our new website is lumpprojects.org. But you can also visit us at our old site, which is teamlump.org. Well, thank you, Kelly. Thank you. I appreciate it. Are you tired of using those trendy dry erase boards? We thought so. Maybe it's time to reacquaint yourself with chalk. 
it's not just for outlining dead bodies anymore. You can write words or even sentences. You can draw pie charts or pie equations, even pie recipes. Oh, and you could take it a step further too. You can draw pictures of your freshly baked pies. Chalk, that's right, chalk. Ever try to draw on a sidewalk with a dry erase marker? It doesn't work. Hey, dry erase markers, it's chalk calling. Eat our dust. The White Box Project. Oh, yeah. I've seen the sort of initial images of it, but can you talk about that project? Well, I wanted to talk about race. And I had previously done Postcards from Home, which were a series of contemporary clan hoods. I, I, what year did I do those? Those were previous to the border, I think. I wanted to talk about race. I wanted to place it squarely on the shoulders of white people. Mm -hmm. And people kept saying to me back then, oh, we're done with that. We don't wear those white clan hoods anymore. And so I was like, mm, you can't historicize it that easily. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what? If you're not wearing that white clan hood, what are you wearing? You may be wearing this pinstripe suit. You may be wearing this silk dress with embroidered flowers. You may be wearing that pink linen suit to church on Sundays and then mm -hmm. turning to your neighbor and saying something unacceptable. Right. So I started sewing those, and those also came out of this idea of James Allen, who collected the lynching photographs. And he came to UNC, and he gave a talk. He didn't show a single photo, but he talked about how everyone was complicit mm. and how racism comes from the home. And it was a really powerful talk for me. And so, and as a photographer, you know, and so there's this act of terrorism, and then you take a photograph of it, and you send it out as a postcard. Mm -hmm. That's what happened. Right. So I was using photography. I was reinterpreting the Klan hood. And they were very hard images, I have to say. They were, for some people. They it, back then, they were. Now, when I show them, people say, oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember somebody said to me, those are violent photos. And they've said that to me about the border work, too. It's, mm. It becomes violent for people when they don't want to look at it. They want right. to wish it away. They don't want to see it. But That's really interesting. Yeah. And I said, mm, this photo isn't violent. You know, it's of one of my friends in a clan hood or my son in this this reshaped image of a clan hood. It's not even a real clan hood. And I said, you know, when your son doesn't get an education, when you can't leave your son in the car, when you go into the bank because you're afraid something's going to happen to him, mm -hmm. when some woman picks up her purse because you walk by subtle and not so subtle ways, it just never ends. At that moment in time, it was kind of hard for white people to talk about race in their work. It was really only in the art world only accepted, I think, for a person of color to have that conversation. And I don't think anything's changing until we can all talk about it. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to make it really personal, you know, and I was trying to rethink another way to do it. So one day I just thought, oh, you know, no one ever reminds you, if you're part of the dominant culture, no one ever reminds you that you're part of the dominant culture. You just are. You just get to be and go and do. So I just decided I would take this white box and carry it with me for a week to remind myself, you know, that I was white. Because mm 
because it's so easy to, you know, put it down and forget about it. We don't think about all the ways we benefit from the history that we live in every day. Right. So I carried this white box. It was empty. So you could imagine what was in it. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember taking it to a dinner party and somebody said, oh, that's the first thing I saw about you. I thought you had a present for me. So I was like, no, it's a white <laughs> box. You have to take it to my grocery store. Right. I have Harris Teeter and Fresh Market and Whole Foods. And those are really nice grocery stores. I lived in a part of Baltimore where you know, it was a food desert. You could not get good fresh food. Mm -hmm. I took it to the dentist and we had this great conversation about you know, about whiteness and why our culture is obsessed with white teeth. And I took it to, you know, the food co-op. And as my son says, oh, mom, you bought an overpriced coffee drink, right? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I did because I can and I probably will again. Right. <laughs> you know, it's my privilege. And so what I realized, because I kind of thought, oh, I'm this college professor. I don't make that much money, da, da, da. And then I realized, wow, I live a really privileged life. I can get mm -hmm. dental care. You know, I can do all these things. Right. I can move freely. It just, you know, and when you have to bring it with you all the time, you remember it all the time. Right. And I took a class, and there was a woman there named Sabrina, and she was from East Germany. And when she saw my box, she said, you know, when I'm in East Germany, I'm just this regular person, just normal, everyday person. When I go to West Germany, I become a second-class citizen. When I come to the United States, I'm sort of a special, normal, everyday person. But then when I tell people that I am from East Germany, all of a sudden I become exotic. And so that told me how race is constructed. It's put in place. It shifts from mm -hmm. place to place. Anyways, the, so the box was, I learned how privileged I am. And mm. it was a chore to carry it with me every day. <laughs> right. And it was a way to spark conversations because you don't just carry around a white box like that. It was, you know, right. 18 by 18 inches. It was good for me. I learned a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a way to visualize that. It's a way to get people to think about being part of the dominant culture and how easy it is to forget. And... I think it's a, very easy for a lot of people, obviously. I can understand certain people wanting to enjoy all of those things that, that come along with, with being white. It's amazing to me that you can look at our society and not see that privilege. But there are a lot of people that do not even see it. And that is incredible. And I'm just always scared about how are we going to move forward if people can't even acknowledge this thing. Whether or not they give a damn is a different thing. But to not even be able to see it is just incredible. People can't see it because it's the water they swim in. It's so much a part of our language and our culture and I mean watch a TV show every once in a while I'll go back and look at some TV show that I grew up with there it's oh yeah we were taught as little kids all this racist stuff and it's just you know it's passed on right. and then you can't see it mm -hmm. that's part of like those hoods that I made those right. postcards from home part of that was me sewing those hoods and right. that implicated me and it really also talked to about the idea of passing it on, coming from the home. Also, this idea of feminine racism, because somehow, I don't know how I had this idea, and I've talked to other women friends, and they've said the same thing, that as a child, for me, it was racism was this thing that the males did. Mm. 
Women didn't do that. <laughs> the men did that. But no, everyone takes part in that. Right. So that was part of the the importance of me learning to sew those. Th- in fact, and here I have to do a little PR for Stacy Kirby because <laughs> she was working at the Museum of History, I guess, as a textile curator. And she said that they had a 1920s clan hood. So she invited me in and she and Anne Peranto got this 1920s clan hood out with stains and it was really powerful and they taught me how to make an original pattern so wow. that my those were made you know from this original garment exactly the same way and the first one I made it's so scary I put it on and it fit me mm. totally scared me <laughs> Well, I mean, I think that's uh, one of the things that so well, there's several things that are really powerful about those those images. They are, as you said earlier about your work, they are beautiful. I mean, these objects are of beautiful materials. And then the way I mean, they you know, like the toile, is that how is that mm-hmm. how you say it? Like mm-hmm. the like fa- some of them are fancy materials and they're beautifully made and then they're beautifully shot. So there's this really seductive sort of quality to them that makes them even more powerful. And I can see earlier why you said that, that there it's interesting that you could say that something like that is violent when it's a person just standing there, but it is, I don't know if I would use the word violent, but they are very powerful uh, because of that history and to move them into modern times it it does make you aware of where we are now and, and that we haven't gone that far, I mm-hmm. think. You're making me think about when I was maybe six. I don't, I, this is, yeah, this is, mm. and I went to my dad and we lived in Ohio. And I said, dad, how come there are no black people in town? There's, how come just, I mean, it was just like, why, why are they not here? Mm-hmm. And he just, I'll never forget. He just looked at me and he said, Oh, they probably all got run out of town after the Civil War. Hmm. And I looked in retrospect, and I I realized that there was a law in that town at that time that if you were African-American, you could not sleep overnight in that town. It was wow. what was called a sunset town. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in a very white environment, needless to say. Mm-hmm. And I think you come to see things. I don't think one thing one instance makes you see everything. But when I was 18, my dear friend Milton Anderson asked me to the prom. Mm -hmm. He was a trumpet player and I was a saxophone player in the band. And this was at Myers Park High School in Charlotte. And I got my dress and he got his tux and we got ready to go to the prom. And my parents just said, oh no, Oh no! You, he was African American, of course, and my parents just said, Mm-mm, "You're not doing that." And what they said was, "Your father will lose his job. What will the neighbors think?" And I didn't go to the prom with Milton, mm. and I knew I was wrong. I just knew I was wrong, but I wasn't strong enough at that point to stand up to my parents. And I carried that with me for a long time. Milton and I wrote letters and stayed in touch for a while, and then we lost touch. And then I remember thinking, I have to talk to him. I have to apologize to him. I was so wrong. Mm -hmm. And I would come home from college, and I would look in the phone book, because back then it was, you know, the phone book. 
I would look in the phone book and I would look for Andersons and I would call them and I never could find him. Oh, man. Eventually I did find him on Facebook and we're Facebook friends. And he just said, Susan, get over it, you know, like, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I had to say that to him, mm -hmm. you know, and it was just one of those moments when I didn't stand up and I knew I should have. So I think that was a pivotal moment for me mm -hmm. in um, just life. You knew it at the time. It was 1977. I knew right. I was wrong. Right. I mean, I you know, I knew I was wrong, but I, you know. I was but like, at the same time, I'll, it's your parents telling you this thing. It's not exactly totally free will decision on your part. No, no. I Yeah. But, you know, they were like, your dad will lose his job, Susan. He will lose his job. Would he have? He could have. I don't know. Yeah. I don't think so. Yeah. But yeah, people do lose their jobs over things like this. True. Right. And so later on, trying to process this, you think that sort of led to some of the different projects? I think it just was a level of awareness about race, mm -hmm. you know, and about, oh, it's okay if it's over there, mm -hmm. but if you bring it home and it's your daughter, it's not okay. I mean, it should, it, you know, it, you can sort of lilt through life and think everybody's PC and, and then you bring it on home mm. and then it really shows up. Right. Does that make sense? Oh, sure. Oh, hell yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I'm, I'm from the South. Yes. Yeah. So I just think that was a pivotal moment for me, you know, and. Right. So I'd like to talk a little bit about your trips to Italy. You, you've talked about it a little bit, but I know that this is a, a reoccurring trip that you make every year. Is that right? Mm -hmm. I go every summer for about three months. If I go to this really beautiful town, Roman Hill Town called Spello. Mm -hmm. It's in Umbria. It's near Assisi. Mm -hmm. And oh, I first went there. I was, do you want me to tell you this? Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so I went with my then boyfriend. We went to Perugia and mm -hmm. lived for a year and went to l'Università per Stranieri and he continued studying, but after three months, I just took my little Nikromat FT2 camera, <laughs> and I would go out on the buses and the trains, and one day, and just kind of wander. And I wandered into Gubbio then. Oh, wow. Which you know. Mm -hmm. And one day, I got off at this little train stop that said Spello, and it was just dusty and quiet, and I was like, what's here? So mm -hmm. I just get off the train walk up the main street of this little town and the light was stunning mm. and the architecture was amazing and there were these beautiful spaces and there were all these churches named after women la chiesa di sant'anna oh, la wow. chiesa di santa maria maggiore and i just thought wow that's kind of cool mm -hmm. they don't name big buildings after women in the united states and in 1992 i got a fulbright to go back to this little town my project was to photograph objects that people give power to mm. religious objects because i was really curious about how those objects became powerful mm -hmm. religious objects and also secular objects i think everybody makes personal altars so i was really interested in looking at both of those not just the religious stuff but i knew there was great religious well, stuff there i understand that the religious but what do you, give an example of the secular on your dresser you put maybe your grandfather's photo right. or your dead husband's photo mm -hmm. or a shell from the beach right just some these little objects that sort of 
become touchstones for you. Mm -hmm. You may not call it an altar or think of it as an altar, but for me, it's an altar. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be religious. It doesn't have to be part of this prescribed patriarchal thing that right. exists in the world. So I show up, and this is in 1992, mm -hmm. pre all these computer things. Right. You're right. So back in the day, you showed up with a letter of introduction. And so I asked the Fulbright people in Rome, please give me a letter of introduction to the town priest, because I knew he would know everyone in the town. Mm -hmm. I show up at the door of Don Giuseppe. And so he greets me. And I said, could I live with a family? Or do you know a family I could live with? Because I want to work on my Italian and I can't afford to stay in a hotel. And so he said, mm, I don't know a family, but there's this group of cloistered nuns across the street. And I'll go talk to them. Wow. So he goes and he talks to them. And he comes back and he says, well, I have to talk to them again. <laughs> and he goes back, talks to them again. And eventually, like three days later, they invite me in. They have these, uh, a part of the monastery that's rooms for traveling priests and mm -hmm. traveling nuns and uh, religious pilgrims. So they gave me one of those rooms and I stayed there. And for a long time, I was really out of the cloister. And then after maybe six or eight weeks, they sort of invited me, you know, tentatively into the cloister. So I have a long friendship with these group of women and they became like my family, like my sisters. It was a pretty coming in from the outside i had access to a community of women who were really powerful they took care of all their day-to-day -day affairs they ran you know it was like a business they it's pretty awesome mm -hmm. you know they had their own world and family in there and then the minute a priest would come by of course they were submissive mm -hmm. they their whole everything shifted the power wow. structure changed right so i was this outside observer and then there were always these priests that would come by, and the Mother Superior was a really good cook. So it was really a lot of fun because <laughs> the priests would come just to eat her food. Right. And so it was really a lot of fun. I mean, there was mm -hmm. it was this really strong, powerful community. I don't see it. It's changed. It's not like that today. Really? It's slowly diminished over the years. But at that moment in time, it was a real – it was a very vibrant, interesting community. And I was totally an outsider, so I had a certain sort of access Anyways, the nuns have become my lifelong friends, and I go back there every summer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they sometimes they give me a studio. Two years ago, I had a studio in the in the back of the Duomo, which is built on the temple, wow. a temple to Venus and mm, another woman. Anyways, so I have this really long relationship with this town, and I've been going back and making work there for many many years. So I go back every summer. What is that work like? When you go back, do you feel like you're you're sort of picking up from the last time you were there, or is it totally different every time? It's different every time. It's never the same. Usually what I do, I started doing more painting and drawing in 2012, and it goes back to one of the basic things that I think about, which is we should let our eyes look at what they want to look at, just give yourself permission to, if you if you find yourself looking at something over and over again, like I'm sitting here and I'm looking at these guitars behind you, mm -hmm. and I, that's what I want to look at. You should just let yourself look at that. One of my favorite philosophers, Simone Weil, said, paying complete attention to something is like prayer or the purest form of generosity. For example, in 2012, I went to the monastery and 
I knew that I wanted to use this beautiful paper that my friend Anne-Marie had made. I went to the art store and I tried some different things to draw on it and got some few paints. And then as I left the house, I thought, I'm going to take these bits and pieces of lace, these lace collars. And I just put them in my bag. And I spent the summer drawing them. And they were just the things that I wanted to look at, but I really looked at them closely. Right. And I started conceptual drawings of them. I started recreating the labor of the women who made them by drawing each stitch with a tiny, tiny circle. Hmm. So it was this really close examination. And then I would shift them. I would change the patterns and I would break them up in two. I also used doilies and things that the nuns gave me. They would hand me things to work on. And so I would draw those. So they're aware of what you're doing. Oh, they gave me a space in the monastery. Yeah, yeah. Did they frequently come and say, hey, what, what's going on? They would kind of sneak in <laughs> <laughs> or they would bring me water or something. They would say, what are you working on? Or I could tell at night they would sneak into where I'd been working and look oh, that's at cool. what I'd made. They're proud of it. That was kind of a marvelous summer because I had been in the monastery for a month. And one of my friends said, okay, Susan, you've been here too long. You're working too hard. I'm going to take you to this talk in another town. It was a photo talk. And so she did. And there was a curator there. And I said, oh, this is what I'm doing and she wrote for one of the major Italian newspapers in Rome. And she said, oh, I'm going to come visit you. And I thought to myself, she's not taking the train <laughs> from Rome to this little hill town and coming to visit me in this monastery. But she did. Wow. And she wrote this, this big article in Il Manifesto, which is a major national Italian newspaper. And they printed it right away. And she said, I never expected that. But they did. They ran this big spread. It's kind of amazing. And... Then she later curated a show for me at a museum in Rome. Oh, that's but, great. Um, you just never know where something good is going to come from. So you brought the paper from home and you brought the lace from home. Could you have made that work at home? I don't think so. I don't know. The other sort of two tenets that I have when I'm really creating is make a mark every day. Hmm. And sometimes I would go down there and I would literally make one mark and that was it. But I made a mark every single day. And sometimes I would make a mark in the morning and think that I was going to go out and take a walk and I'd be there three hours later. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I did that summer was, because this was new, I hadn't done a lot of drawing. I've always marked on my photos and done different things with marking and actions, but not this intensive. And I gave myself permission to throw it out. Mm -hmm. I just thought, I'm going to make all this stuff. It's what I want to do. I think it's working. If it's not good at the end of the summer, I don't even have to bring it home. I'll just tear it up. Right. I'm not going to lug it back to the United States. But then I did lug it, and <laughs> it, yeah, it was well-received. So That's one of those things that I think artists have to constantly, maybe not everyone, but a lot of people have to really remind themselves. Like I've said before about when you're first starting out like you're in college and you're you're just in a basic drawing class, it's so hard to get the kids to just – do the assignment, learn yep. how to use the materials because they all want to make the greatest work in the world. And you still have to fight that, even if you've been making art a long time, to just allow yourself to do this thing. And if it sucks, then that's all right. You yeah. know, it's still something you have to kind of fight against. Yeah, I think um, I'm pretty much self taught. I mean, I didn't, you know, I took two photo classes in high school and then I've never taken a drawing class ever, ever. And I got my MFA later on in life at 
you know, San Francisco Art Institute in 2005. And yeah, I just think we have to fail faster and we have to revel in our failures. And often I'll carry an idea around and I'll start to talk about it to somebody. Then I imagine that I'm going to make it. And then my first attempt is like, you try it and you're just like, oh, geez, no. <laughs> ah. But the trick is to just learn from that and go on. Mm -hmm. And you never know because you can, you can carry it around in your head. And if you don't actually realize it, you just don't know if it's a good idea or not. Right. So you just have to try stuff and you have to, I mean, I think the most successful people in the world probably fail faster. Oh, yeah. I think about the work that you make, which I can't imagine making, you know, that's out of wood and requires long process and it's so beautiful. I, well, I used to really plan these things out, you know, and it felt like just executing a plan. And at some point I just started making things. Like if I wanted to make something, I just picked up what was there and started to make it. And it made it more difficult, but it also meant that I had to make decisions and think through the process, which to me makes it worth doing. I mean, the other way, it just seemed like I gave it to a manufacturer and I just happened to be the manufacturer, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Your presence is really in those pieces and Thank they're you. really beautiful. I think that's the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. So uh, you teach at UNC, but you're not in the art department. I'm not. You are an assistant professor in the Department of Women's and Gender Studies. I am. And I'm proud to be in that department. Right. Yeah. But your work, your your classes are art-based. Did I make that up? So I, <laughs> no. So I taught in the art department at UNC for seven years. And mm -hmm. then I was asked if I wanted this position in Women's and Gender Studies. since I said yes. And they asked me because you know, my history, my work is very much feminist work. Mm -hmm. And it really does follow the history of feminist thought because I have been making work for a long time now. <laughs> so I'm really lucky. I get to teach these classes that really combine making and theory. Mm -hmm. And they work in conjunction. I'm really a proponent of embodied learning, experiential learning. I think if you do it. No one can. It's kind of amazing. It's like going back to the dark room for me. The experience of making those prints, somebody could talk to me about that all day long. But until I made those images in the dark room, mm -hmm. didn't mean anything. And right. it's a it's a learning that never leaves your body. Mm -hmm. So I'm teaching class now on art and social change. And the students are making personal history garments. So they're sewing, wow. using laser cutters. And I can't wait to see what they make because I've never given this assignment before, this particular assignment, but mm -hmm. I think it's going to be amazing. And then I teach a couple of classes on identity in transit. Performing the self through photography is a first-year seminar I'm teaching. And we look at the history of self-portraiture and photography and how artists use that space to create spaces for new identities, to create spaces for themselves, to push the borders of social norms. And the students make a series of self-portraits and they are pushing their own boundaries and they're asked to show up in a particular way. And in the process, we're reading theory and right. reading about artists and looking at Claude Cahoon's work and asking what was happening, why her work was so performative, what it means, what she was pushing back against. 
Are these, yeah. these are not necessarily art students or are they most mostly my, not? No, they're, most of my students are not art students. And I, I'm so, it's amazing to me because I just had to write a whole bunch of letters of recommendation. And they're, I wrote, I write letters of recommendation for people, women mostly, who are going to be lawyers, social activists, social work. They work in public health. It's really an honor to work with these students because they're so willing to engage. Mm -hmm. I think... We spend a lot of time in higher institutions, you know, writing and working in a different way. Mm -hmm. And the process of the experience disappears. And when you do something with visual art, when you actually sew it, when you actually hammer a hundred of those nails in, you look at it later and you're like, those nails make meaning. You know, you can actually see the physicality of the process. Right. It's visible. And students often comment on that. If you had a student in an art class and they are just starting out a beginning art student and you have a student in one of your classes that are just starting out that they don't, both of them don't have maybe a long history of making things or none. Is there a difference in the way they approach it? I'm not really going to answer that question, but the best art is art that's about something. So I have the luxury of working with these students from all over the university and they've taken all these interesting classes and then they bring that experience and those thoughts and that theory into my classroom. Right. And we have these amazing discussions and then they transform it, synthesize it into something visual. And they're asking for meaning in their lives and these fields they're going into. I'm thinking about some of my students who are in sciences, you know, just how much they enjoy thinking about things. And I, often I do projects with objects in my women's, I teach feminist thought, and mm -hmm. I do a project where they bring in one object and we just discuss it from many different standpoints, what that object means, who made it, who it was created for, et cetera, et cetera. And they look at the world in a new way and they're able right. to sort of pick apart the fields that they're in and talk about them in new ways. So you just got back from the beach. I did. And that is one of the things that I decided to do for myself because I thought, oh, you've been working hard all year. Mm -hmm. You need to do something. Per divertimento. Mm -hmm. And so I just went to the beach. It was really lovely. The weather is the weather ridiculous. The weather was astounding. The sun was out. I watched the sunrise this morning on the beach. Oh, wow. So that is one of those things I do for myself other than walk on the border. Right. You walk on the beach? I did walk on the beach, yeah. Mm. The beach is an amazing thing. It's so close by that I think I forget how just ridiculous the ocean is. It's just incredible. Every time I go, and I've been a bajillion times, I always am just in awe of it. It's just so immense, and and we're not that important. That's it. That's the secret to life. It is? Isn't it? Warren told me it was whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. So what was the what was the coolest thing you saw? Was it the the sunrise? Mm, I think it was last night. I was walking on the beach with my dear friend Betsy Bilger, and the waves were reflecting this pink light. So the mm. waves were pink. And it was kind of amazing. And right. I tried to photograph it. And of course, it didn't work. Right. And I just put my cell phone away and enjoyed it. Right. Yeah. That's It's so nice. It was amazing. 
I need to go more. I have never experienced it, but I've had friends that have been on on a boat out in the ocean. And it's been so calm that you can't tell where the horizon line is. It's like it all kind of blur mm. the sky and the, the water kind of blur. And I think that that would just be incredible not to be able to kind of place yourself against a horizon line like that. Mm. One day, maybe. Yeah, sublime. That's, mm-hmm. the, that's the word. Yeah. Yeah. I lived in Cassis, France for a while, and uh, that's where I learned just where the ocean comes together with the light, and it's just, it's sublime. That mm. And it's like, there's another thing that brings that to me, you know. Right. What is sublime? You can't just really tell somebody what it is. You have to experience it. Right. It's that thing. of It's the light and the water mm-hmm. and the immensity of it and your body in a different space and the sounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember in undergrad, you know, when you're in art history and they're trying to describe the sublime and I'm like, what now? What 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 <laughs> the hell? What are you talking about? But um yeah, I don't think it is something that you can verbalize and or certainly I can't, but you could try to paint it, I guess. I guess that's what they were doing, but um yeah. But what I see is I see the smile in your body right now, like <laughs> I can see it reflected in your face. Right. It's really beautiful. Well, I need to go to Italy because I think that I would see, I would feel that more often. Come to Italy. I will. And and I'm leaving Warren behind. No, he has to come record it. So your goal ultimately <laughs> is to move and live there, right? Yeah, I'm making a slow movement in that direction. I've just decided that that's my home and it's going to take several years. It's a process. Mm-hmm. Um. But I'm really at peace in this little town in Italy. And my goal is very specific. I, I, I want a dog and I want some chickens. Mm-hmm. And I want to live on a particular side of this little town mm-hmm. <laughs> that has the best view, I believe. So I'm working towards that slowly. When you live there, where are you going to go to get away from it all? I guess I'll have to come back here and bother <laughs> you and Warren. Well, thank you, Susan Harbage Page. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you, Jeff and Warren. And one other thing, you have a great blog-based website. Where can I find that? What's the address for that? The address is susanharbagepage.blogspot.com. Beautiful. Well, thank you. Thank you. Real Kitty Kitty Litter is the first and only all-in-one pet kit. Are you tired of having to make two trips to rescue a new cat? We thought so. First, you have to drive all the way to the shelter and then off to the pet store. To hell with that. Real Kitty Kitty Litter comes with a free kitten in every box. You're welcome. Hurry now while supplies last. Seriously, hurry. Real Kitty Kitty Litter. Meow. Don't You Lie to Me is physically sponsored by VAE Raleigh. Bless their hearts. This doesn't mean that they give us money, but it does allow us to accept tax-deductible donations to help us keep this podcast on life support. We have big plans for this podcast, so any amount that you can contribute will go a long way in helping us get there. It's pretty damn easy, too. Go to DontYouLieToMe.com and click on the Sponsors page. If you're new to the podcast, please check out our previous episodes. You can find them on our website, DontYouLieToMe.com, or wherever you found this one. If you like what you hear, and even if you don't, you can help us out by subscribing and leaving a comment and or rating us on iTunes. 
All of these things make a huge difference in helping us receive higher rankings, which helps us gain sponsors. You guys are amazing. Don't You Lie to Me is physically sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c nonprofit creativity incubator. You can find out more about them at VAERaleigh.com. We'd also like to thank Matt McMichaels for the use of his studio, Trusty Woods. Our theme song was written by our own Warren Hicks, and our logo design was created by Artsy Martha. Don't forget to check out our website at DontYouLieToMe.com. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and tell your friends and family to listen as well.